Hey everybody, this is Volts for March 7th, 2022. Volts Podcast, Aaron Mayfield on the enormous potential impacts of the Build Back Better Act. I am your host, David Roberts. So the Build Back Better Act, about which I have written and talked quite a bit here on Volts, is dead. Apparently, dead as a doornail. Uh, Late last year, our beloved West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin basically drew a red line, said he would not pass the bill in its current form, issued a bunch of demands and restrictions. The other Democrats were thrown into chaos. And now, a bunch of other stuff has distracted attention from the Build Back Better Act, including the ongoing pandemic, the ongoing right-wing assault on democracy, now Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It seems that the neglected Build Back Better Act is drifting farther and farther away from our political consciousness. That is a very bad thing because the climate provisions of the Build Back Better Act represent Not only Democrats' final chance to take substantial action on climate at the federal level, but a genuinely good climate bill. And what's more, Manchin has expressed openness to the climate portions of the bill. He recently came out with a sort of counteroffer to his fellow Dems, a very extremely stripped-back version of the bill which would include some raising of taxes on rich people, some reducing of prescription drug prices, the revenue of which would go to climate spending. Basically a revenue and climate bill. No one's quite sure what he wants to see in that climate part, but he has previously expressed openness to the climate provisions of Build Back Better as they exist. So somebody needs to get on that. To illustrate the point, just what an impactful decision this is, just what a big deal this is, a new round of modeling has recently been issued by the Zero Lab at Princeton, specifically their REPEAT project, i.e. Rapid Energy Policy Evaluation and Analysis Toolkit, which they have set up basically to do rapid modeling on legislation that is currently being discussed to reduce the lag between legislation and modeling. So what the REPEAT project has done is model a net zero pathway, but then also model what the infrastructure bill that passed last year, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, what it would do, what it would accomplish in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and energy spending, and then what Build Back Better would do and accomplish in terms of greenhouse gases and energy spending. And they recently issued a report. One of the lead authors on the report is Aaron Mayfield, a professor of engineering at Dartmouth who specializes in energy systems and energy modeling. I thought I would have Aaron on to talk about her modeling of the bill, why the bill would have the effects it has, and how it compares to a world where only the bipartisan infrastructure bill has passed. I'm very excited to talk to her, not only about the technical details of the report, but some of the political implications, 
what it means for inflation, what it means for the debt, what it means for jobs, and what, if anything, it has to do with the war in Ukraine. Without further ado, uh, Aaron Mayfield, welcome to Volts. Hello, happy to be here. Great to have you. Uh, this is uh, some great charts you've sent me, so <laughs> I'm excited to walk through this. So what I thought we would do is start with this report and sort of walk through some of the details, look at the ins and outs, and then maybe uh, toward the end, we'll pivot toward political situation. So to begin with, you're uh, the repeat project here. The Zero Lab has done some modeling of the U.S. energy future. You modeled four scenarios. One is just called frozen policy. It just means policy as of the day Joe Biden took office. Obviously, that's not going to be realistic, but it's sort of a, a baseline if nothing happened. And then you modeled a net zero scenario, which I wanted to ask quickly about, is it right to think about the net zero scenario as the sort of ideal scenario? Is Did you just sort of tell your model, get to net zero, figure out the cheapest way to do it? Is that what that represents? I wouldn't quite call it ideal. I would say that it is a cost-optimized pathway, right. right? We are kind of a diverse people with different types of objectives. So right. ideal is in the eye of the beholder, but it meets our net zero targets by 2050, in addition to an interim target of 50% below 2005 levels by 2030. Right. So the main consideration the model is using is just lowest cost. Yes. And we can acknowledge that in real life, there might be other considerations, but that's sort of from a cost perspective, ideal. Okay. So you can think of the frozen policies as the rock bottom and the net zero as the sort of aspiration. And then in between those were two scenarios. One is the infrastructure bill that passed recently. And then the second is the infrastructure bill plus the Build Back Better Act. So I wanted to start by just talking about the big picture results here, because I think that's kind of the most important thing I want to emphasize in this podcast. So sort of tell us how far the infrastructure bill gets in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions and how far the Build Back Better Act gets and sort of how that compares to those top and bottom scenarios. Sure. So I would say that we wanted to not only evaluate the emission reductions or how and if we meet emission targets. We also wanted to evaluate what it physically means in terms of things like clean energy infrastructure, mm. electric vehicle deployment, and fossil energy use, and also what these policies mean for households and investors. So we looked at impacts like household energy expenditures, capital investment, employment, air pollution impacts. So all of these impacts that are important to different stakeholders but kind of beginning with what do these policies mean for emissions. Right. So enacting the climate um, and clean energy investments in Build Back Better would cut greenhouse gas emissions by over 5 billion tons between 2022 and 2030. So this would put the U.S. on track to reach President Biden's commitment to cut emissions by half of peak levels by 2030. So importantly, though, without the Build Back Better Act or some equivalent, 
the recently enacted infrastructure bill would leave annual greenhouse gas emissions over 1 billion tons short of the nation's 2030 goal, which is a huge gap. So in other words, the infrastructure bill would achieve only about a 9% of the emission reductions needed to reach 2030 emission targets through largely transportation and building sector investments. The Build Back Better Act has the potential to deliver about 90% of the necessary emissions reductions to meet the 2030 targets. Right. I just wanted to lay that basic groundwork because I think that's sort of the main take home here is just the infrastructure bill does very little. It's It's very close to negligible as a climate bill. And conversely, Build Back Better gets close to what we actually need. Like it's very close to, although not quite there, to a net zero trajectory. So this is all just by way of sort of emphasizing what I assume is obvious to you, but maybe not be obvious to all listeners, which is the Build Back Better Act climate provisions are the difference between almost nothing and almost sufficient. It's a very, it's a very, very big deal. I just wanted to get that on the table to start with. Um, you did model two different versions of Build Back Better. And the sort of latter one reduces emissions a little bit less. Say just something quickly about the sort of difference in those two. Sure. So in the November version of Build Back Better, over 30% of emission reductions are in the power sector and about a quarter are in the transportation sector. Mm -hmm. And there's also emission reductions associated with industrial and building sectors, as well as some non-CO2 greenhouse gas reductions. So these, again, are based on the November variant of Build Back Better. How the November version relates to the earlier version of the act from September is that there's no longer the clean electricity performance program that Mm -hmm. would have further reduced emissions in the power sector. But the November version has an increased 45Q tax credit for carbon capture, which contributes to further reductions in emissions in the industrial sector. Right. So they come out relatively close emissions-wise. I think it was a 9%, something like that, gap Mm -hmm. between the two. But the source of the emissions uh, shifts. And and I was going to ask about that because the November, the latter version, seems to allow for a lot more coal, I noticed. Is that due to the loss of the clean electricity payment program? That's in part what's happening. Um, It's a complex system, so there's many things interacting at once, but that's in, in part. So that's emissions. Let's talk about um, consumer energy expenditures, how much U.S. consumers spend on energy. You know, it's all these graphs are sort of the same. It shows that the infrastructure bill will do very little and the Build Back Better will do a lot. So tell us sort of how much Build Back Better would reduce expenditures and why. And maybe say just a little bit about the regional aspects. I mean, it will um, have more effects in some places than others. So the Build Back Better Act lowers annual U.S. energy expenditures in aggregate for households, businesses, and industry. And so this is from kind of tax credits, rebates, and federal investments in the act would shift costs from our energy bills to the federal tax base. Mm. We would lower the cost of electric vehicles and heat pumps and finance investments in energy productivity enhancing improvements and carbon capture equipment. So what does this mean for households? So in terms of reductions in household energy expenditures, 
on average, annual household expenditures will decline by about $300 by 2030. So this comes from investments in things like heating electrification, energy efficiency measures, and electric vehicle purchases. So households displacing expenditures on gasoline and heating fuels. Mm -hmm. As you said, energy expenditures vary regionally. So for example, with Texas potentially seeing annual household expenditures decline um, on the order of $500, which is non-trivial for many households. Yeah, the Texas is the number one in the, in how much things will get cheaper. Why, why is that? So, so in part is because of I mean we're electrifying kind of our our grid, right? Mm-hmm. That's a that's a big part, and also there's a vehicle adoption in there, which is is non-trivial as well. But I mean, why why Texas particularly? Do we know why are they particularly unelectrified at the moment? Like why? Why are they going to save so much money? So this is, again, underlying this is cost optimizing assumptions. So mm-hmm. in part of this is driven by kind of your your resource base of solar and, and wind in, in the region. And Texas has a lot of both, presumably. Mm-hmm. One thing I noticed, uh, it, it does show that Build Back Better would dramatically raise capital expenditures in energy supply. It would just raise the amount of money that we spend on supplying energy. One thing I noticed that struck me as a little odd is both versions of Build Back Better would raise capital expenditures on energy supply through 2030 or 2035 more than a net zero scenario would. And I sort of wondered why that is. Are we overspending or are we are we misspending? Like why it, it was a very similar story in jobs, too. Like the Build Back Better would produce more jobs than the net zero scenario would through 2030. Why Why is that? Yeah, I wouldn't say that kind of it's misspending. It's spending a little bit differently on the margins. So in terms of capital investments and in infrastructure, the passage of Build Back Better would increase capital investments by more than $1.5 trillion out to 2030. So these investments include so CO2 transport and storage and fossil power generation with carbon capture. Mm-hmm. In addition to investments in hydrogen production, which differs from our net zero pathway case. So investments in hydrogen production in technologies like electrolysis and, and methane reforming. The greatest impact is on investment in wind power and solar PV between the Build Back Better and the infrastructure bill, that investment in wind and solar amounts to on the order of like 550 billion that will support both domestic manufacturing of solar and wind products and the development and construction of wind and solar infrastructure. So this is also kind of percolates into the effects that you're seeing on the job side, which are largely coming from domestic manufacturing of solar and wind and construction, in addition to construction and maintenance of our grid infrastructure. Yeah, I noticed that, and I guess it's probably similar for similar reasons, that the Build Back Better scenario builds out more wind and solar than the net zero scenario does. And and that also confused me a little bit. I guess I'm just not used to seeing anything that the U.S. is planning on doing being sufficient, much less like over the line of of sufficient. So why, why would Build Back Better build more wind and solar than a net zero scenario would. 
So importantly, the net zero scenario that we're presenting is one potential pathway. The rate of build out of solar and wind can differ depending on the way the net zero pathway is modeled. And importantly, we're also only showing results out to 2035. Mm -hmm. So when you look at a net zero pathway out beyond 2035, you see continued ramp up of solar and wind deployment. So in the end, there's a lot of solar and wind deployment in both the Build Back Better and any type of net zero scenario that we could model. And it continues beyond what we're we're showing in our report out to 2050. Sure. So maybe we could think of it as moving some of the spending on wind and solar up in time a little bit Mm -hmm. relative to the sort of cost optimized pathway. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's capital expenditures. So, we, you know, we have a um, consumer electricity bills falling. You have overall investment in clean electrification radically ramping up through Build Back Better. And again, just to make a note, the infrastructure bill only has virtually no effect on either of those. It's just marginal in all your graphs, basically. It's not much of an anything. And then there's also air pollution. This is sort of a a hobby horse of mine, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, all the research on air pollution in the last, whoever knows, decades, but especially the last decade or so, just shows that it's worse and worse and worse than we thought at lower doses than we thought in more ways than we thought. I just feel like this is a completely under-discussed aspect of everything, and Build Back Better would dramatically reduce air pollution, too. So so say a little bit about that, why an infrastructure bill alone wouldn't, and why Build Back Better would. And I guess the lives saved, or however you quantify that. Yeah. I mean, to start out, kind of with just a snapshot of air pollution effects from our energy system. So embedded in our energy system are inequities in the distribution of these air pollution-related impacts. So in general, air pollution from our energy system is regressive, such that low-income people bear the highest burden in terms of health effects from air pollution. And air pollution from our, our energy system as a whole also disproportionately impacts people of color, mm-hmm. which has been caused by how we historically have cited infrastructure and then inequities within our housing markets and our, our broader economy. So the Build Back Better Act has the potential to reduce public health impacts from air pollution. And this is really driven by the retirement of coal power plants Mm. and the electrification of our vehicle fleet. So the benefits are on the order of 25,000 mortalities are avoided from the passage of Build Back Better. Importantly, however, how investments are allocated will greatly influence the magnitude and the distribution of these air pollution related benefits. Yes, that means like which coal plants are closed, (laughs) how fast transportation is decarbonized, you mean that kind of thing? Exactly, yes. Is it fair to say that almost anything that reduces particulate air pollution in the U.S. has progressive benefits just because the damages are so regressive almost any pollution reduction ends up being almost by default progressive on some level yes but again it really depends on how we make these investments and so that could kind of greatly impact kind of the relative health effects or improvements in health for different subpopulations on the basis of income and, and race 
And is there anything in the latest version of Build Back Better that, because I know, I mean, there's been so many versions of this thing flying around for so long now. I know that equity provisions were a big deal early on, that there were some sort of provisions about the benefits of spending, like 40% of the benefits of spending have to go to vulnerable communities. Is there still some of that stuff in the latest version of Build Back Better? Is there still reason to believe that those investments will be equitably allocated? Well, kind of beyond Build Back Better, but thinking more towards kind of a Justice 40 or equivalent provisions or kind of statements from the White House, these are things that people in kind of government, our, our government institutions have to figure out how these funds are equitably allocated and, and what does equitably allocated actually mean, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's certainly some provisions within Build Back Better, um, but a lot of that will also come, the details, the important details will come kind of after passage and, and how it's kind of distributed and that will be driven on the federal government side and how that's decided. So how the agencies process that, how the agencies set it up. Mm -hmm. And that will be mostly EPA and Department of Energy, or are there other big players in, in spending all this money or allocating all this stuff? You know, some of it's yet to be seen, like Mm. how it's administratively handled. I would imagine Department of Transportation has the role in this as well. Mm -hmm. And then it also goes down to kind of, is this allocated? How is this funneled through states? How is this funneled to communities? And the states play a role as well. Like, what is the state's role? That's kind of uncertain as well. Yeah, a lot TBD. One thing I wanted to emphasize also is that your graphs show that either version of the Build Back Better Act and the net zero scenario pretty dramatically reduce net energy demand. And I think that might not be sort of entirely intuitive to people since we're building a bunch of stuff and we're growing, the economy is growing, the population is growing, and we're passing a bill that's going to have us spend billions of dollars on new power infrastructure. And yet, despite all that, net power demand is declining through the magic of electrification. So say say a little bit about why that happens. Sure. And maybe kind of more broadly, an important element to highlight is what this all means in terms of our physical changes in our energy infrastructure systems and supply chains and demand. And so with respect to final energy, Build Back Better can reduce demand in net by about 6%. And this is largely comes from reduced dependence and use of fossil fuels like natural gas, gasoline, and diesel and increases in electricity and hydrogen. Um, I would say kind of there's other infrastructure changes to point out as well. So on the transportation front, the act would support about 35 million light duty electric vehicles on the road by 2030 and over 30 million light duty trucks and SUVs. So that translates into about a quarter of the light duty fleet being electric by 2030. And there's also support for substantial investments in medium and heavy-duty trucks, such that there could be 5 million zero-emission trucks by 2030, which includes both EVs and fuel cell vehicles. So decarbonizing the transportation sector is really a driving force for reducing final energy demand and reliance on fossil fuels. And of course, changes in the residential sector are also really important. So the act would support massive changes in space and water heating through the adoption of heat pumps, which displaces the use of natural gas and heating fuel oils for meeting heating demands. 
And so in quantitative terms, that means 40 million households may have heat pumps by 2030 or a third of all residences. There's potentially similar adoption rates kind of in the commercial sector as well. And of course, there are massive changes in power system infrastructure that would be spurred by the act. This includes major retirements of coal power, as we talked about, and the massive build-out of solar and wind, in addition to fossil fuel power with carbon capture, such that over 80% of generation is clean by 2030. And so this means, from the perspective of build rates, on the order of 40 gigawatts of solar annually over the next couple of years and ramping up to 100 gigawatts annually by 2030. And you can compare this to historical build rates or in 2020 of about 10 gigawatts of utility Uh scale solar. And the story looks similar for the rate of wind build out, which is on the order of 30 to 60 gigawatts annually over the next decade, compared to, again, historical build out in 2020 of about 15 gigawatts of wind. So these build rates are not unachievable, right? Investors and developers are already mobilizing wind and solar. And it's roaring in many respects. We saw just this past week kind of major bids for offshore wind leases. Mm -hmm. And, you know, investment is falling or maybe even leading the policy wins. So Build Back Better also supports a large build out of gas and even coal with carbon capture on the scale of build out rates during the shale gas boom. I want to come back to that, but I don't want to leave this point because I feel like a lot of energy people maybe take this for granted, but I'm not sure the public knows it. Like the reason that electrifying the vehicle fleet leads to a reduction in net energy is just that electric engines are way more efficient than gas engines (laughs) and electric heat pumps are way more efficient than gas furnaces. Any move to electrification, you end up getting the same work, right? The same service with much less primary energy. I feel like that's sort of like a a fact that's hidden in plain sight that I constantly feel like needs more advertisement. Like we could cut our energy demand dramatically while getting exactly the same energy services just by electrifying. I don't know. I'm always I'm always waving that flag. But in terms of electricity, obviously electrifying things leads to more electricity use of of the total electricity use in the country. And that will come with, you know, an expansion of infrastructure somewhat. And there's some concerns on the margins about is the U.S. grid ready to supply that much more electricity? Because we're talking about like a lot more electricity involved. Um, Are we ready for that? And are there sufficient investments in Build Back Better to get us ready for that, just in terms of transmission and distribution systems being beefed up and new transmission lines built, all that kind of stuff? So to support the build out of our electric power infrastructure, mainly our wind and solar, this, of course, also means a build out of our transmission and distribution infrastructure. So we show kind of large investments in build out in interregional transmission from the upper Midwest to the Great Lakes and Mid-Atlantic, as well as from the lower Midwest to the Southeast, really kind of across the board. And so this is spurred in part by grant funding and the transmission investment tax credit within Build Back Better. Right. I forgot about that. So there's reason to believe that the infrastructure can keep up with the increasing demand for electricity. Like you're not worried about that. 
I think this is kind of where it's maybe important to point out the difference between model world and the real world. <laughs> yes, that's kind of what I was getting at. They're not the same. So real world outcomes will contend with various non-cost challenges that could slow or otherwise differ from the pace of changes and the allocation of investments relative to what we're assuming and what we're modeling. You know, at a high level, our modeling optimizes assuming rational economic behavior from all actors, <laughs> and we're assuming some inefficiencies in the allocation of resources, but the modeling has really limited frictions related to deployment and sequencing right. of power generation and transmission capacity, you know, limited frictions with respect to the scale up of our industrial supply chains like wind turbines and solar panels and heat pumps and all of the necessary materials to make those products. And we also are assuming efficient consumer adoption of products like EVs and heat pumps, given these relative price signals and incentives. So there's certainly a substantial amount of uncertainty in how the future will unfold and kind of a difference between model world and the real world. I would also say there, there's a lot of degrees of freedom with respect to how investments and in infrastructure deployments can manifest, like, you know, baked into the legislation is some level of fungibility mm -hmm. with respect to how funding is allocated and investments are made and different stakeholders have different preferences and different ethics, whether implicit or explicit with respect to these investments and in infrastructure and the environmental and economic impacts from those investments. Mm-hmm. And the sort of soft costs or, or kind of regulatory barriers to transmission are something that I've talked a lot about here on Volts. Isn't there some stuff in the infrastructure bill to ease those or am I making that up from vague memories? In the most recent variant, I'm not sure if I can fully say what the enabling actions are. There's many provisions of Build Back Better, right? But certainly in terms of grant and fund funding and transmission and the transmission investment tax credit. Transportation decarbonization, unlike some of the other measures, like in a lot of respects, what the Build Back Better Act does is at or close to the sort of line of the net zero scenario. It almost is in line with net zero. In terms of transportation decarbonization, it's a little slower than what net zero shows. Why is that? And sort of like, what are the levers there that could be pulled a little harder to get us on track there? Mm -hmm. So there are the different transportation or EV incentives within there. And again, going back to the net zero scenario, it is one version of the rate of electrification. You could certainly have a net zero scenario that shows slower vehicle electrification or electrification of the transportation as a whole, right? So it's one variant that doesn't, what we modeled in the net zero scenario doesn't exactly align with, with what's in Build Back Better, um, but there are substantial investments in Build Back Better on the transportation front. And so those differences may not be that big or kind of thwart our ability to meet our 2030 and 2050 targets. Right. Some of that, I guess, will wash out in the long term, regardless. Uh, I have one very small random question about the about one of the graphs in the report. Um, like I said, uh, if you look at the sort of line of Build Back Better and the line of net zero, they're more or less in alignment in a lot of these sort of graphs and a lot of the sort of areas. 
But one place where the net zero model differs a lot from Build Back Better is randomly in residential water heating. Like the, the net zero scenario shows residential water heating just plunging in energy demand and, and not as much in Build Back Better. Why this is a small thing, but like, why does the model like electric water heaters so much? So I think maybe it's important to point out kind of, you know, we read through legislative text, oh like God, every line people. of the legislative text, and we linked it to how that actually kind of is is modeled in our system. And the way the provisions are written, some investments aren't tagged to like water heating, right? So it's not kind of represented in the model. So that accounts for kind of differences between the modeled scenario for build back better versus net zero in terms of investments in water heating. Right. So maybe on the margins, it's impossible to be totally specific in your modeling about Build Back Better because the bill itself is not totally specific. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Another striking difference between what your optimized cost model wants to do and what Build Back Better is going to do comes in sequestration. So sort of the more recent form of Build Back Better, the mansion form lost the clean electricity payment program, but picked up a bunch of additional subsidy for sequestration. Um, I guess the way I'd ask it is, why does the cost-optimized scenario have virtually no sequestration through 2030 or 2035? Is it just assuming that that won't become cost prohibitive through there? Or, or why, is, why so much more sequestration in Build Back Better than in the sort of cost-optimized model? Yeah. So in a cost-optimized model, it's selecting things that on the margin are, are cost-effective, right? right? And with the provisions in Build Back Better, it's supporting kind of a build-out of gas and even kind of your coal with carbon capture through the, the types of tax credits within the bill and other provisions within the bill that's supporting the build-out of gas and coal infrastructure with capture, which wouldn't otherwise be selected in kind of a cost effective framework. I see. So the idea is hopefully these early investments in that stuff will reduce the costs, mm -hmm. at which point if you re-ran the cost optimization model, it might select more of them. Yeah, that, that's a possibility. And, and part of these, and this is beyond kind of our carbon capture infrastructure, but it relates to carbon capture. Some of the provisions within the bill are really enabling actions, right? So they don't directly mitigate or reduce emissions in the near term, but mm -hmm. actually are kind of enabling in future investments and driving down costs in, in some, some areas. Right. Which is what you'd want, right? It's mm -hmm. forward-looking, trying to, I mean, this is the sort of, you know, we got into a version of this debate around the 24-7 electricity thing, sort of, are you trying to maximize your near-term carbon reductions or are you spending down technologies to reduce their costs in future carbon reductions? So it sounds like there's a little bit of both in, in Build Back Better. The final question I had about the model itself, which I thought was striking in a little odd, the only of the five scenarios, baseline, uh, infrastructure bill, the two build back betters, and then net zero, the only scenario in which the use of natural gas rises is the net zero scenario. Like your net zero scenario uses substantially more natural gas 
than any of the other scenarios. And I wonder if you, is there's a easy way to explain that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's how we're using our, our fuel supplies, right? And, and that's, a big part of it. I would say also underlying this in a wrinkle that's not even kind of reflected in probably the figure that you're looking at right now, a large part of the natural gas supply question comes in terms of how much we're exporting as well. So that's a wrinkle that's not even addressed in that as well. Why would a cost optimized scenario choose more gas than, <laughs> I guess I don't fully get that. It's counterintuitive. Yeah, and it it relates to all the other investments in the portfolio, right? So again, we're cutting kind of the snapshot to 2035, right? And so you see all this investment in, in solar wind in our Build Back Better scenarios that are even kind of beyond what we see in our net zero scenario. Mm-hmm. Also in there, you're, you can see kind of what's happening with respect to nuclear between our different scenarios, which also influences what is going on kind of with natural gas and is kind of supplying a firm, clean, firm resource. Right. Yeah. I guess the, the way I'd summarize it is out through 2035 or, or however far this goes, the net zero scenario includes more firm, right? It includes more nuclear and gas than either of the Build Back Better scenarios and less wind and solar. Is that just because having a little bit more firm reduces system costs? Is that is that the explanation? Yeah, on the margin, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so this is the report. This is the modeling. You, you know, the basic take home is that Build Back Better would be, even in its slightly diminished form, a massive, truly historic piece of climate legislation that would get us close to the trajectory we need to be on. And not passing it and satisfying ourselves with the infrastructure bill would be very close to doing nothing on climate. Just to repeat that point one more time, I'm you know, I feel the events in the world carrying us away from this debate, carrying us away from this subject. And I just feel like I'm on the raft shouting, <laughs> wait, <laughs> it's a big deal. So let's talk just a little bit about the politics. You know, Build Back Better's, I was going to say in limbo, but I guess we should just admit at this point that it's just dead in its current form. You know, a lot of that has to do with Manchin and a lot of that has to do with some of his worries, which I thought we could briefly discuss here. So let's talk about inflation. Everybody's worried about inflation. Manchin's worried about spending while we're experiencing inflation. What can we say about what Build Back Better would do to inflation? Can we say anything confidently? Well, there's a few things that we can say and kind of the points made earlier about reducing energy expenditures, I think that's kind of an extremely important point, right? I would also say we're also reducing our dependence on fossil fuels and potential kind of global shocks as well. And so further kind of insulating American consumers from those types of price shocks. Right. I guess so on kind of the mansion question and 
his preferences, right. And whatever his current whims are, you know, I have to say (laughs) I am a bit fatigued when it comes to thinking and talking about Joe Manchin. And I imagine many people feel very similarly. So one thing to say is that, you know, no policy is perfect. And so there's no such thing as perfect policy. And the U.S. is made of a lot of different people that are diverse and have different opinions and preferences and ethics. And so policymaking is always operating in this place of satisficing. And so the question becomes, what are we willing to accept? And what are the people or the person with power (laughs) willing to accept? So instead of trying to like over-intellectualize or decipher what Manchin's motivations are and kind of long discussions on inflationary effects that may not manifest or may have no basis, perhaps like just take Manchin at his word regarding what he wants in the moment for whatever reasons those may be. And I, I don't mean to say that kind of fold over, but at the same time, like trying to over decipher what Manchin's concerns are, I, I don't think that's gotten us very far, right? We're stalled. In some respects, the kinds of concerns he's voicing are common. Well, they're common among conservatives, frankly, (laughs) sort of conservative. But I think, you know, insofar as Biden has to speak for this stuff, these provisions, it seems to me like he has a pretty good case to make on inflation, which is that, you know, you're worried about energy prices. Energy prices are a a particularly concentrated area of inflation. Well, here's a bill that's going to reduce those. Like, It seems like I don't hear the champions of this bill really making that case out publicly, but it seems like a pretty obvious one. It seems like anti-inflationary effects of the bill ought to be, I don't know, at least discussed. What about debt, too? Just Let's just resolve that question really quickly. Of course, lots of people in American politics claim to be concerned about the debt. Uh, What would be the effect on the deficit of of the latest version of Build Back Better? Yeah, I mean, that's a recurrent question. And I would say, again, going back to what we're seeing as in terms of expenditures, what it means for society, we're reducing our total expenditures in in net from a societal perspective. Right. That's frustrating because there are lots of situations in which more government spending could reduce overall societal spending to positive effect. But like people just get obsessed with that one that one measurement. And isn't it all paid for? I mean, is the current version of Build Back Better? It's all paid for, at least in the current version, right? I I believe so. Or at least over 10 years, Mm -hmm. I think is supposed to be the for, for whatever that matters. Another political aspect that I feel very frustrated with the backers of this bill for not making good arguments. But like another argument I feel like they ought to be making is there's a ton of stuff in here, is there not, that would bolster domestic manufacturing, which is just universally popular among voters. Like what do do we have reason to believe that this would, you know, really stand up some domestic supply chains? Is there stuff in there that's big enough and impactful enough to really make a big difference in domestic manufacturing? Mm -hmm. So there's some tax incentive adders to stimulate domestic manufacturing shares of products like solar panels and wind turbines and heat pumps. And they could be really quite substantial in building out domestic supply chains. And do we know, do we know anything about the geographic effects there? Like where those jobs might be likely to land or is it impossible to say at this point? It's 
impossible to say. There's many factors that influence where manufacturing facilities are are sited and expand. So it's hard to say kind of where those facilities will arise and then resultingly where those manufacturing jobs are. Right. It would be nice to to be able to say that they will go to, you know, sort of impacted areas of the country where manufacturing has been emptied out and where politics is currently a dumpster fire. It does seem like that's worth highlighting. Finally, this Ukraine situation. I think everybody understands at this point that it's about energy. Well, not about energy. That energy is a huge, huge factor here that everyone's dependence on Russian gas is in some sense constraining geopolitical response to this Russian aggression. And, you know, you're seeing a lot of people, including the aforementioned he who shall not be named, but also a lot of, you know, fossil fuel execs, etc., saying the lesson here is that we need to quit with this sort of green frenzy and get serious about ramping up domestic supply of oil and gas, that that's the way to sort of insulate ourselves from this kind of thing. What lesson do you think we should be learning (laughs) from this? Yeah. So, of course, there's an inundation of takes regarding the U.S.'s role. So many takes. In in all of this and, and how it interacts with our domestic energy policy and decarbonization. And full disclosure, I did not become an expert in the geopolitics of Ukraine and Russia overnight. So, <laughs> You're so, behind. So yeah. what I can speak to are some of the touch points with domestic energy policy, though. So hopefully without being kind of entirely prescriptive or even naive regarding what we should or even can do, given realities of our existing infrastructure, And also the realities and uncertainties of our domestic and global commodity markets. Mm. So I would say kind of reflexively when I hear proposals to increase domestic fossil fuel production and associated infrastructure in the U.S. to meet kind of very near-term potential needs in, in Europe and elsewhere, I immediately think that we're resorting to these archaic tools and, and narratives and I think there's like big questions. Are we further entrenching our systems in into this inextricable dependence on fossil fuels? Are we further exposing consumers to volatile global markets? What are the existing physical near-term constraints of the U.S. infrastructure system, like current LNG terminal capacity and use? Mm-hmm. You know, LNG terminals and crude oil pipelines do not get built overnight. On the other hand, ethically, what role does or should the U.S. play in all of these interacting crises of of climate change and and Russia's aggression? So where my thinking has kind of momentarily landed is that, of course, passing Build Back Better or some equivalent mansion-backed policy variant is one of the most important things that the U.S. can do to manage an impending energy crisis in Europe. So these types of investments and the magnitude of these investments will drive down domestic consumption of oil and gas, helping to shield American consumers from volatile global commodity markets while meeting climate targets. It begins to free up the need to import as much oil and reduces our demand for domestically produced gas, which in turn can help on some level moderate the constrained kind of global markets or these markets that need to reconfigure in the absence of Russian gas. 
And so the situation is absolutely more complicated than what I'm conveying. And the ethical dimensions are absolutely more complicated than what I'm conveying. But the overarching logic holds that we have to reduce domestic demand for fossil fuels and shore up our domestic manufacturing capacity, which are important in the context of the climate crisis and are important in terms of the crisis in Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. It does seem the long term, I guess, kind of moral trajectories or sort of strategic situation seems a little simpler than the short term one. Like long term, it seems very obvious that just not being dependent on fossil fuels is going to is going to ease a lot of these problems. But what to do in the short term is quite vexing. As you say, we can't just like throw pipelines and, and refineries up. Those aren't fast, but you know, the sort of reductions in gas demand that would free up some domestic gas for Europe are also not super fast. I'm almost inclined to say that sort of like big changes in energy infrastructure are simply too slow a tool to be really viable in a kind of short-term crisis like this, or at least as a response to a short-term crisis. But much like you, I'm not an expert either. (laughs) Much like everyone else on the internet, we're speculating. Okay, well then, final question, and perhaps the most difficult question of all, and the one that's most impossible to answer, where are you currently, if you were a betting person, <laughs> on this stuff getting passed? Like, what's your current, uh, you know, it, I feel like it changes from day to day, but just at this exact moment, how are you feeling about the prospects of the climate provisions of Build Back Better getting through somehow? I am not a betting person, and <laughs> I do not have any special knowledge of where mansions stands, where kind of the politics stand, and they change in an instant. So I will say that I will always be optimistic that we will do something and we will be ready to model any kind of variant (laughs) that Washington comes up with to support decision making. Yeah, the latest thing Manchin said is, His latest proposal, just in case listeners have not heard this yet, is he wants to lower prescription drug prices and tax rich people in order to pay for the climate parts of Build Back Better. That's kind of his proposal, but he wants the climate parts of Build Back Better to ramp up their investment in domestic oil and gas because he's convinced that that's a meaningful response to to the Russia crisis. So... That's where things currently stand. You may be modeling uh, yet another mansion version here in the next few weeks as we see those lines decline in efficacy more and more. Well, thank you for coming on and going through this. Thanks for, uh, you know, your sort of thankless work modeling these things that never end up getting passed. I, uh, I at least appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right. Bye now. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.